we do commit this time to you. Lord, we thank you that in this great big world, the gospel of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed. People are hearing the good news. They're experiencing salvation, forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to you. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that as you pour out your Holy Spirit, as you move on the hearts of men and women, that you would continue to pour out your Spirit on the men and women who are living in darkness in India, in East Africa, in China, all over the world. Lord, we know that there are hundreds of millions of people who need to hear and respond to the gospel. Lord, we thank you for the great privilege that we have, that we can share Christ. And so now, Father, we pray that you that you'll bless this time. Lord, I pray that as you prepare hearts, that you'll also speak to hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 8, it says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Remember how the passage has started off at the beginning of chapter 14. Their hearts are troubled. Their hearts are troubled because Jesus has told them that someone would betray them. Jesus has informed Peter that he would deny him. Jesus has said that he is going to go to a cross. Jesus has said... That he's leaving and they're not going to be able to follow. They needed assurances. We know from the Gospel of John that Jesus is on a divine mission. Jesus is on a mission from God. But now we learn something else. That the Father is also on a mission. And the Father is going to accomplish his mission through the Son. Much of John's Gospel is devoted to the reality that Jesus reveals the Father, and that in that revelation, we can find hope, we can find strength, we can find forgiveness, we can find life. Jesus reminds the disciples that they are going to heaven. But remember why they're going to heaven. Because He's going to a cross. And Jesus reminds them that they can know the Father right now. And Jesus reminds them that they have a new power. And he's going to introduce a new privilege. 
It's a privilege in prayer. And later he's going to talk about a new presence, the presence of the Holy Spirit in verses 16 and 17. And all of these assurances are going to be necessary. The new power, the new privilege, the new presence, because God is going to have a plan and a purpose. The disciples are going to need to be all that they can be. And with the new power and with the new promise comes greater works and unlimited answers to prayers. All of this is squeezed into this one passage. If there is a singular issue, it's the issue of what it means to know God. Not simply things about God. Not just simply information about God. But it's to ask and answer the question, what does it mean to know Him? To know the Lord? We may find a deep fascination with theology. We may even study a great deal about godliness and know a great deal about moral virtue. We may read our Bible and we may give money to outstanding causes. It's possible to do all of those things and not know God. Recently, on Wednesdays, we finished our study in the book of Daniel. For those of you who joined us and for those of you who are catching up, when you read through the book of Daniel, you are introduced to a man who knows God. Daniel knew God. Daniel had a great energy for God. He had great thoughts about God. He had great boldness for God. He also had great contentment in the Lord. If we were made to know God and be known by God, the real question that we should ask ourselves every single moment of every single day is why am I involved in so much that has nothing to do with knowing Him? J.I. Packer writes in his wonderful book, Knowing God, what is the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, more delight, more contentment than anything else. It's knowledge of God. Quote, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man of his strength or the rich man of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. That's Jeremiah chapter nine, verses 23 and 24. It's easy to boast about so much. Where we went to school, awards that we've received, sports figures that we follow, teams that we endorse. G.I. Packer goes on and he asks and he answers perhaps the most important question a Christian can ever ask. Quote, how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing it is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into a matter of meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. That's very, very good. It's easy to be caught up in getting more and more information. But if that information doesn't lead to transformation then maybe it's time to pause 
We have a tendency to care about the immediate, the current crisis, the problème du jour. It's like soup du jour, only it's a problème. When we ask and we answer the question, what is the overwhelming truth in the section that is before us? It isn't simply that Jesus is a good man who points the way to principles about how to know God. It is that Jesus is the full embodiment of God. That Jesus doesn't simply point the way to God, that He is the way to God. Now, Keeping that in mind, we revisit verse 8, satisfying the senses. Look what Philip says. Lord. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. The old King James says, and it sufficeth. In the new King James it says, and it is sufficient for us. Now I want you to think about what you're reading. Jesus has made the remarkable statement. That he doesn't simply show the way to the Father. He is the way to the Father. He doesn't simply say he's a form of truth, but that he is the truth. He is the way and the truth and the life. Yes, Jesus is on a mission from the Father, but the Father is on a mission through the Son. What exactly is Philip asking? Philip's question doesn't come out of the clear blue sky. Remember, remember, Jesus has already addressed Judas. Jesus has addressed Peter. Jesus has addressed Thomas. Everything that you have heard about as you've been studying through the Gospel of John, Philip has heard about. Philip's question comes in light of the fact that God has called Philip and he has walked with Philip. Philip has been a witness of the ministry of Jesus. Philip has seen the message of Jesus and he has participated in the final supper. Philip has heard the announcement about the traitor. Philip has heard the announcement that, that um, Peter is going to fail. Philip has heard the prophecy concerning Jesus' arrest, death, and resurrection. Philip has heard that Jesus is leaving and they're not going to be able to follow. Philip's question really gives us a clue, not only to his state of mind, but all of the disciples' state of mind. I'm going to suggest something to you. That they thought that Jesus might be going somewhere. But that somewhere wasn't to a cross, and it wasn't to death. That they thought that Jesus might be going to some quiet place, some secluded place, some place of retreat, some place to meet with God. Earlier in the Gospels, we heard the story of how Jesus goes to the Mount of Transfiguration. And remember there, they're met by Elijah and Moses. There's this spectacular demonstration of supernatural things happening. Clearly in the Bible, men had met with God in the past. Jacob, when he was running from his brother, meets God at Bethel. You'll remember the story in Genesis chapter 28, where he's running from his brother for dear life. He makes a pillow of stones. He places his head on that pillow, and the sky opens up, and a ladder comes down, and angels ascend and descend. You'll remember the story of Moses, how he goes to the top of the mountain in order to receive the law in Exodus chapter 3 and in Exodus chapter 24. 
You'll remember the story of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19 and Isaiah chapter 6 and Ezekiel chapter 1. It's, it's, no, it's not a book about anything other than the revelation of God given over and over and over again. And so think about Philip's question for just a minute. We've walked with you and we've talked with you and we've heard from you and we've seen the miracles. If you're going to go to the Father, why not just simply take us with you? The disciples wanted to see the Father as well. Perhaps a dramatic display of God's power and presence. If there's this unmistakable, powerful manifestation of the Father, isn't that just what the doctor ordered? I mean, if you have a troubled heart, if you're agitated and upset, wouldn't a thing like a glorious miracle blow the top off things? Now think about it for just a moment. Think about what he's asking. He's asking what I am convinced that you've asked for at least one time in your life. At least one time in your life, in some circumstance, at some point, you've cried out to God and you've said, if you're real, prove it to me. Show me. Reveal yourself to me. Has the Lord ever said to you, well, what do you want as evidence? What are you willing to accept as evidence? You know what? Jesus has revealed the Father. The revelation that He's given is true. But sometimes even that revelation brings us to the end, to the limit of our ability to comprehend, our ability to understand. Even Jesus cannot show what cannot be shown. Seeing Jesus is seeing God. Remember what the Bible has said over and over again. No one has actually seen God in the physical sense where you lay eyes on the complete and full manifestation of God in order for Jesus to answer Philip's question and actually answer it in a way that would be satisfying to him. Imagine he does. Imagine Philip has an aneurysm in his brain and the Lord says, Goodbye. The blood vessel bursts in his head. Philip falls like a sack of potatoes. And all of a sudden he's in the throne room of God. Okay, I believe now. All the all the outs in free. No, that's not the way that it works. You see, to fully and finally see fully and finally, it requires a step that Philip isn't quite prepared to make. You see, the Bible doesn't offer philosophical arguments for the existence of God. And clearly the Bible is a book about God. It's, it's not a book about philosophically proving the existence of God, but rather of God revealing himself and in the end revealing himself in the person of Jesus Christ. I know that you have had people who have come to you and they have said to you, I don't believe that there is such a thing as God. You know, typically when a person says to me, I don't believe there's a God, every molecule in my body wants to now offer the proofs. 
I'll talk about the moral argument. I'll talk about the cosmological argument. I'll talk about the teleological argument. But I'm pretty much done with that now. Now when I meet people who claim to know nothing, believe nothing about God, who don't believe that there is a God, instead of playing defense, I've decided to play offense. I ask them, prove to me there isn't a God. And they'll go, that's like saying, prove to me there's no Santa Claus, or prove to me there's no tooth fairy. It's illogical. And I say, oh, so you're an intellectual atheist. That's right. And then I'll say, okay, let's make sure that we understand which God it is that you don't believe in. Let's make sure it's not the polytheistic uh, God or the, the Hindu God or the, the God of Brahman or, or, or the God of polytheism or paganism. Uh, um, let's make sure that we're talking about the right God, the God who knows everything about everything, the uncreated, self-existent creator. Is that the God that you don't believe in? That's right. Okay. Well, let me ask you a question. Are you God? Of course not. So you've already conceded that you don't know everything about everything. That's correct. So are you also willing to concede that there might be a bit of information somewhere in this vast universe unavailable to you that will adequately, fully, and finally convince you that there is a God? You've already conceded that you don't know everything. Is it then possible that such information exists? Well, see, now you're no longer an intellectual atheist. You've moved from intellectual atheism to befuddled agnosticism. We're right on track here. What proof does the unbeliever offer that God doesn't exist? A pastor visited a family whose son had been killed in an automobile accident. He heard the mother cry out, Where was your God when my boy was killed? And he quietly replied, The same place he was when his son was killed. People with troubled hearts and people in pain aren't looking for philosophical, theological, and existential exchanges. They want a way to fill the sorrow that's in their heart. Could it be that Philip felt that a dramatic experience, a powerful manifestation, a dazzling display of deity, a spectacular visible sign from God would bring peace. It would bring the peace that he hoped for, the answers to problems, irrefutable proof of God's existence and with peace and with answers and with irrefutable proof that he could serve God with all of his heart, then maybe he could change, then maybe he could honor God then maybe he could do what's right. The sad fact is that Philip's question reveals something about Philip's heart. 
Philip wasn't satisfied with what he saw in Jesus. And Philip wasn't satisfied with what he heard from Jesus. He wasn't satisfied with what he receives from Jesus. And if you find yourself in a place where you say, I have seen Jesus in the Bible and I've heard from Jesus in the Bible and I have received certain things from Jesus, I've heard it over and over and over again and it's not enough for me. Really? Really? Clearly, Philip's come a long way since Jesus first called him. I don't want to be too harsh, and I certainly don't want to be too critical towards Philip. Who can fault a person who wants to know God and see God? And again, if you are honest with your own heart, haven't you had little private conversations with the Lord and said, look, what's the first thing you're going to do when you get to heaven? Well, I, I, I thought I was going to spend some time with Jesus. And then what? Show me the Father. Okay? Then what? I don't know. I think that that might be enough. Philip wants to see God. He wants to see the supreme being. And Philip's not alone. A lot of people want irrefutable, unmistakable, inarguable proof. They want more. Listen to how Jesus responds. In verse 14, verse 9, chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus says to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? This revelation of Jesus is overwhelming. Remember the context. It's one thing to say, I want to see God. It's another thing to say, I have walked with Jesus. I've talked with Jesus. I've lived with Jesus. I've breathed with Jesus. Everything that Jesus has said, I've, I've heard. And everything Jesus has done, I have seen. When he says, when a person sees Jesus, here's his response. Jesus is saying that the very nature of God, the very perfection of God, the very character of God, the very will of God, the very mind of God is in Jesus. Knowing and seeing Jesus is the same as knowing and seeing God the Father. Jesus claims to be from the Father. Jesus claims to reveal the Father. Jesus claims to reveal the mind, the heart, the plan, the will of the Father. And tragically, tragically, people have misunderstood and misapplied this verse. You don't know how many times people have called me on my radio program. And they'll call me up and they'll quote John chapter 14, verse 9. And they'll say, have I not been with you so long and you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. That means that the Father is the Son. And I'll say, no. Jesus is not the same person as God the Father. The Bible teaches that the Father is a person, and the Son is a person, and the Holy Spirit is a person. They are distinct in their identity. You mean there's three gods? No. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is Echad, one. There isn't 
three gods and there isn't five gods. There isn't nine gods. There aren't hundreds of gods. The choices are zero, one, and a lot. The Bible says there is a God. The Bible says there aren't lots of gods. The Bible says that there's only one God. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that the Father sent the Son in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, and in 1 John chapter 4, verse 14. The Son, he even says, Jesus says himself, I'm not speaking on my own, but rather I'm speaking on the authority of the Father. Not just here, but in John chapter 8, verse 28, and in John chapter 12, verse 49. Jesus argues in John chapter 5, verse 31, and also in John chapter 8, verse 16, that the Father and the Son count as two witnesses concerning the testimony of the words of Jesus. Jesus says that there's not just one witness, but two witnesses. And so Jesus is either a very bad mathematician or a singular God. But I'm, gonna, I'm here to tell you something. That the Bible makes it abundantly clear that when Jesus uses the logic of counting both the Father and the Son as two witnesses, it affirms the distinction of the personhood of the Father and the Son. And clearly the Bible teaches that the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. If the Father is the Son, then we would have to say the Father loves himself. Does that make sense? It really doesn't make sense because the very nature of love requires a lover and the person, the object of the person being loved. So when the Bible says God is love, it becomes an exercise both in futility and logic unless there is a distinction of identity within the Godhead. And that's clearly what the Bible teaches. The Father loves the Son. And the Son loves the Father. As a matter of fact, in, in verse 10, look what it says. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. When he says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me, he is speaking not just simply of plan and will, of expectation and hope. He's also speaking of essence. As a matter of fact, the way the verb, the verse reads in the Greek language, it carries the expectation of an affirmative answer from the person being addressed. In other words, in verse 10, it says, you do believe I am in the Father, right? That's what it's saying. Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in the Son. The words and the works of Jesus reveal the heart of the Father, the plan of the Father, the will of the Father, the nature of the Father. Now, there are people who claim to have seen Jesus in the flesh. I make no such claim. I've never seen Jesus. He's never appeared to me in a dream or a vision. 
He's never walked up the aisle. He's never joined me on stage. I've never seen the physical, incarnate presence of Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, Peter writes, Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. How is it possible to love someone that you've never seen? Peter says it is possible. You've never seen Jesus, at least with the naked eye. But you see him through the eyes of faith. Remember, in our culture and society, we have a a saying, seeing is believing. But in the Bible, it's not true. Believing is seeing. And I see him. I see Jesus in his works, and I see Jesus in his word, and I see Jesus in his people. And again, Jesus isn't simply all that he does, and Jesus isn't simply all that he says. Jesus is more than all that he says and all that he does. By the way, the word believe is singular in verse 10, which means he's talking to Philip. Jesus is speaking to Philip, but in the very next verse, the word believe is in the plural. So the idea is now Jesus is, is, goes from addressing Philip in the singular to addressing everyone present in the plural. And the tense of both verbs in verse 10 and verse 11 is believe and go on believing. In other words, the statement is you believe, right? You believe and you should believe and you should keep on Believing, the idea being keep on believing and let your faith grow. In verse 11, it says, believes, plural, me, that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe, plural, me, for the sake of the works themselves. So here's what Jesus is doing. He doesn't answer Philip's question with, hey, you know what? Sure, I'm God, so let's have some fun. And he, he, he gives Philip 12 fingers and 12 toes. Oh, okay, that's kind of, that's odd. Well, do you think that would be pretty wild? And then he takes it away? Or he takes a mountain and he makes it appear and reappear? Or how about if he goes, hey, look, you want to see something really cool? We're all going to take a walk on the surface of the sun. And then they all, all of a sudden they find themselves like Daniel and the children in the fiery furnace, only now they're in the very heart of the sun and they're walking around. Are you going to go, okay, I'm pretty much convinced that there's something supernatural happening here. But he doesn't do that. He offers a claim And then he offers a test. And the test is based on two things. Everything that he has said and everything that he has done. Look again in verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Here's what he's saying. When you listen to what Jesus has to say. 
You're listening to God's own truth. When you hear what he does, you're seeing what God does. Now, let me help you with this. When a genius speaks, it isn't always self-evident. And when you hear Jesus speak, when you hear about the principles that he promotes, when you hear him speak, what is the impression that Jesus is giving to you? The words of Jesus, here's what he's saying, are the words of God. God speaks through Jesus and then works through Jesus. What happens when men are unable to hear the words of Jesus? That means they're not able to hear the words of God. What happens when a person is unable to perceive right from wrong and good from evil and truth from error? Then they're asked to believe what Jesus does. Listen to what I'm saying. Jesus is in effect saying, believe everything I say. And what if the answer is, I, I don't. I, I don't believe everything that you're saying. Then Jesus says, then believe everything that I've done. What has he done? He's opened blind eyes. He's opened deaf ears. He has walked on water. He has fed 5,000 people. He has brought people back to life. So? Okay. You're not willing to believe what he says. And you're not willing to believe what he does. But I need to remind you of something. That this is exactly the same answer that Jesus gave earlier when he spoke to the disciples of John the Baptist. You'll remember that they asked Jesus whether or not he was God's Messiah or should they look for someone else. And you'll remember what he said. You go back and you tell John what's happening. The blind have their eyes restored. The deaf hear. The lame walk. That should convince him. That's Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary on this passage, pointed out that 400 years earlier, the philosopher Plato wrote, quote, To find out the Father and Maker of all this universe is a hard task. And when we have found Him, to speak of Him to all men is impossible, unquote. But Plato was wrong. Plato was wrong, and Jesus is right. Jesus says that the search for God begins when you look at Him, what He has to say and what He does. You know what the problem with most people, even smart people, the problem with most people, even smart people, they want faith to be on their own terms. I want to believe what I want to believe. I want to do what I want to do. Okay? And what do you want to believe? Well, I don't want to believe Jesus is the only way. How's that working out for you? I want to know God. But I want to know God apart from Christ. 
I want to retain spiritual values, but I want none of the responsibilities and obligations that go from entering into a true faith friendship with a living person. What do you want? You know, I want a religion. I want to be able to make statues and light candles and observe holy days and root for the nuggets. By the way, it's okay to root for the nuggets. So don't leave going, he's against the nuggets. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that football, baseball, basketball are wonderful things. But they're a miserable religion. I heard the story of a hunter who who always got lost in the woods. And one day he bought a compass and he was instructed on how to use it. And then he went back into the woods to hunt and he lost his way again. And when the search party finally found him, they said, why didn't you use your compass? And he replied, I did. I wanted to go north, but the compass kept pointing southwest. I'd shake it, and I'd shake it, and I'd shake it, and it would continue to point in the wrong direction. See, you're laughing because you're going, idiot. The compass is pointing you in the right direction. You're the one who's lost. The Bible is pointing you in the right direction. Jesus is pointing you in the right direction. Jesus keeps pointing people to God and we're asked to believe in God on the basis of Jesus Christ. We're then asked to consider the words of Jesus. Then we're asked to consider the works of Jesus. And here's the point. We can know the Father. We can know God. Jesus has revealed Him and the assurance that Jesus gives to the troubled heart, to the broken heart, to the empty heart, to the dark heart, to the wicked heart, to the fallen heart, to the lost heart is that the creator of the universe, the uncreated creator, the father of life is willing to enter into relationship with you. Jesus is in effect saying, listen to me. Look at me. Believe in me. The right answer is, why should I? And Jesus' response, believe in me on the basis of what I'm saying. Believe in me on the basis of who I am. Believe in me on the basis of what I do. I'm more than happy to present the claims of Christ. And I'm more than happy to argue the claims of Christ. But in the end, you have to listen to Jesus. You have to look to Jesus. You have to believe in Jesus. I had an interesting phone conversation with a person who's coming to Israel who isn't a Christian. This particular person is Jewish. and He called me and he said, Look, when I go to Israel with you, you're not going to try to convert me, are you? And I said to him, 
if I could talk you into believing in Jesus, then someone a little bit more clever than me could talk you out of it. And he goes, I like that answer. And I said, but I am going to give you the truth. And I'm going to tell you over and over and over again. And look what it says in verse 12. Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my father. Over and over again in John's gospel, we've looked at that expression, haven't we? Most assuredly. By now, you know this by heart. Verily, verily, truly, truly, most assuredly, what does it mean? It means what I'm about to tell you is absolutely true. Now, does that mean that the other stuff is false? No. It means that he's drawing particular attention to this. It's Jesus' way of saying, I want to draw specific attention to this. Jesus has just said, believe in me. Believe in me on the basis of my identity with the Father. Believe in me on the basis of oneness and likeness. Believe in me, and this is what's going to happen. Greater promises. Greater works. Jesus is promising new power. The promise of a new prayer life. The promise of a new presence. But remember, all of these promises is connected to something. It's deeply connected to faith. Look what it says. He who believes in me. Faith has been described as the condition on which any promise is to be realized, as well as the basis of Christianity's accomplishments. In other words, faith is the condition of trusting that what a person says is true. As a matter of fact, each and every one of you are going to involve yourself in exercises of, in faith, whether you're a Christian or not. Each one of you will take at some point in the not-too-distant future a, a dollar bill out with the picture of George Washington, another a $5 bill with the picture of Abraham Lincoln, a $20 bill with the picture of Andrew Jackson. And for you people who are unaffected by the recession, you could pull out a little binge. And as you pull it out, you will exchange it for goods and services. Why is that thing worth anything at all? It's only as good as a person making a promise and keeping the promise. You know what? I, it blows my mind that I can take a $5 bill to Chick-fil-A, put it on the counter, and they give me a gigantic tea and a chicken sandwich. It blows my mind. Will that always be the case? Chick-fil-A will do that as long as they believe that it's worth something. Jesus makes a promise deeply connected to himself. It's not faith in religion. It's faith in him. We live in a world of militant skepticism. 
The naturalist, the atheist, and the, sometimes the psychologist will describe what they call the philosophy of faith. They describe faith as the desire, the capacity of human beings to improve and grow. Faith to solve problems, resolve conflict, the ability to work out problems in cooperation. Faith in moral and spiritual values, the essential decency of all humanity. And Jesus identifies faith not in any of that, but as confidence in Him. The demand of faith leads to the command of faith. And the command of faith requires commitment of life and heart and soul and mind and future. So the phrase moves from faith to performance. He says, greater works than these shall he do. What? What in the world does this mean? Did Jesus mean greater in kind or greater in comparison or greater in time or, or greater in extent? Surely he didn't mean greater in kind because who has outdone Jesus? How many people do you know who open blind eyes and deaf ears? Who make the lame to walk and the blind to see? Who bring people back to life? Who walk on water and multiply loaves and fishes? Clearly the Gospels in the book of Acts. Clearly we see the disciples healing the sick and raising the dead and performing miracles. In the book of Acts, Peter approaches the temple to a layman and he says, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise up and walk. And he does. Some have suggested that this verse means that Jesus, as a man in submission to the Father, never performed a single miracle as deity, but rather as a man filled with the Holy Spirit. And because of that, we can do exactly what Jesus does. But that's not true. Because it denies something that is true. Remember what the Revelation has already told us. Jesus isn't an ordinary person. He's not an ordinary man telling us ordinary things or even extraordinary things about God. Jesus isn't claiming to simply point the way to God. He's claiming to be the way to God. He's claiming to be the ladder that came down from heaven in Genesis chapter whatever it was where Jacob receives the ladder. It's got to be 28. I know some of you are thinking, I thought he had a photographic memory. Well, guess what? The film has gone bad. What does it mean? Jesus did exercise power and authority as God. He did so with the advice and the consent of his Father. Did Jesus ever exercise the prerogatives of deity in his earthly ministry? And the answer is yes. So what is Jesus making reference to? The greater works, I don't think, is a reference to the quality of the works, but rather to the quantity of the works. You'll remember when Jesus rises from the dead and he goes to the Father, Peter preaches a single sermon and 3,000 sinners are converted in a single day. And clearly, that's amazing. Opening blind eyes is amazing. Unstopping deaf ears is amazing. But clearly there's nothing more amazing than taking a sinner and turning his, him or her into a saint. 
You know, it may seem extraordinary to cure cancer, AIDS, or leprosy. But there's nothing more amazing than cleansing the human heart, purging the soul, removing guilt and sin. And by the way, the message of Jesus will expand. Greater? Oh, yeah. Christians and Christianity will conquer rival worldviews like paganism and polytheism and triumph over evil and transform sinners. What Paul did in Asia and Macedonia and Rome, transforming lives, constitutes greater works. And we don't substitute one miracle for another. What we do is we simply affirm the greatest miracle of all. What Paul wrote about that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. You know what? Sadly, the changed lives of real Christians don't seem to be the satisfying advertisement that it used to be. It used to be that you could look at a person and you could tell that they were really changed. That their life their speech, their heart, their family. Everything was changed. But I'm here to tell you, it's still happening. With this promise, Jesus gives another promise. Look at verse 13. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son... With the promise, the promise of prayer, also comes the promise of unlimited answers. But the answers are qualified and defined by two things, a condition and a reason. The condition is, in my name. And the reason that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, I want you to think for just a moment. Since Jesus gives the reason for unlimited answers in prayer... It's not because of when we pray. And it's not because of how we pray. And it's not because of where we pray. But rather why we pray. We assume our needs are the reason for answered prayer. But Jesus gives an entirely different reason. To glorify God. And in verse 14, Jesus says... If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. What does that mean? What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? You know, I told my mom that I've announced to my church that if anyone is ever traveling in Southern California and you find yourself in Hesperia, California, and you walk up Sycamore Street and you go to the little duplex on the right and you knock on the first door and you say, Hi! I go to Calvary in Littleton, Colorado. And Gino said, if I was ever on Sycamore Street in Hesperia, California, you would give me a cup of coffee. Guess what my mom would do? She'd give you a cup of coffee. But if you said, hi, I'm here and I come from Calvary, South Denver. And Gina said, if I was ever in Hesperia on Sycamore Street, you would give me a million dollars. Guess what my mom would do? She would slam the door in your face. 
Because she knows something that Gina would never say that you could go to his mother in his name and ask for something that she quite literally can't give you. But that's different. The analogy is different. God can give you everything. Everything. By that I mean anything and everything that's consistent with his character, that's consistent with his plan, that's consistent with his will. To ask anything of the Father in the name of Jesus means that you ask what Jesus would ask, and you ask in a way that would please him, that would bring him glory, that would further the work. When a friend says to you, you can use my name, he's giving you a great privilege, but he's also giving you a tremendous responsibility. We often pray to God in Jesus' name, but we're oblivious to what it means. We don't pray for God's will, but rather that God will approve our will. And so some people use this as a sort of Christian's Aladdin lamp. They think that if they rub the verse long enough and hard enough, that they'll get exactly what they desire. But look at the preface of the prayer. In my name. And the purpose of the prayer, that the Father may be glorified. William Barclay writes, the test of any prayer is, can I make it in the name of Jesus? No man, for instance, could pray for personal vengeance or personal ambition for some unworthy or unchristian object in the name of Jesus. When we pray, we must always ask, can we honestly make this prayer in the name of Jesus? And the prayer which can stand the test of consideration in the end says, your will be done. That's the one that's answered. The prayer based on self cannot expect to be Granted, unquote. You know, a Christian once told his non-Christian friend, you swear a lot. And the unbeliever replied, yeah, but I don't mean anything by it. You pray a lot. But you sure don't mean anything by it either. Do you pray what you mean? Do you mean what you pray? Do you pray in the name of the Son? To the glory of the Father? Prayer isn't simply an exercise in asking. It's an experience in growing. Growing in grace. Growing in submission to God's plan. Growing in God's glory. It's a willingness to embrace the harmony of God's will. And I know that that scares some of you. Some of you are afraid to pray, Lord, do you want me to continue in this relationship? Lord, do you want me to continue on this job? Lord, do you want me to do this? Lord, do you want me to do that? See, that's the difference between praying in Jesus' name and God's glory. You'll want what He wants and only what He wants. So what do we learn? You're connected to the Father. 
Because you're connected to the Son. You can ask the Father because you can ask the Son. The Father will do what the Son desires. And the Father will do what the Son requires. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you. Lord, I pray for these men and women. Lord, you said that we should pray in Jesus' name. And so, Lord, I ask in Jesus' name that they would believe that what you said is true. Lord, I pray that they would believe that the miracles that Jesus did confirms the message that Jesus gave. And for the person, Lord, who says everything that Jesus says and everything that Jesus does isn't enough for me. I want more. Lord, I pray that you will give them exactly what you gave Philip. No more. No less. Lord, I pray that you'll give them a way out of the darkness, out of the sin, out of the blindness. Lord, I pray that the blinders would drop and the lights would come on and they would see you. In Jesus' name.